It's Wednesday, February 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Motley Fool One, Morgan Housel, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Michael Olson. Gentlemen, happy Tuesday. Good to be here. Hello. We've got a lot to get to today, including the future of Microsoft, but we begin with today's earnings headlines. Earlier today, Michael Kors announced some pretty solid numbers. Mike Olson, run us through what caught your eye uh, and uh, how the quarter went for Kors. I mean, the collective appetite for cheesy purses is I mean, its <laughs> really just quite astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, comparable store sales, so that's locations that have been open for more than a year, up 27.8%. Not bad. Uh, yeah, if I could do that, I would love to. Earnings per share up 73.4%. Truly, this is an outstanding performance. There's no getting around that. Gross margins were something on order of 60%. I think operating margins were 30%. Company is basically minting cash. Um, <laughs> the problem is this is a really difficult business. They've expanded or they've succeeded by expanding the size of the pie moving down market. And there can come a time when you're dealing in middle market luxury goods that your customers no longer like what you are. Hmm. Um, they're in a very kind of interesting market position where they're, they're, they're right at the center. They offer something that is aspirational and yet it's also accessible. So okay. that's a hard position to be in. Um, a little bit of context here. Coach, they were one of the more successful middle market luxury designers. If you, uh, it sounds like an oxymoron in and of <laughs> itself. Uh, and you know, now they're the run to the liver, litter after pursuing a very similar strategy. I guess. And it, another interesting piece of context as we go through this. I think we said this when we were <laughs> when we were on market floor really last. Mm-hmm. Um, Coors has the same market cap as coach despite having half the sales and half the earnings. Also, you don't get China and Michael Kors um, Hmm. because they've sort of carved this segment out when they IPO'd the business. I think that there's kind of a logical limit to growth within this business if you're to go ahead and preserve the brand. And a lot of that seems to be priced into Michael Kors at 37 times earnings. Moreover, you know, as investors, we have the ability to not have an opinion. And <laughs> honestly, this is one I'd rather not have an opinion on. <laughs> no, I'm not going to allow that because the obvious follow-up question to your points, Michael Kors, you look at it since 2011 when it went public, it's had one heck of a run. Does the run continue or is it running out of steam? Uh, for me, I just think this is a very expensive company. They've mm. had extraordinary success. But they're really working against numbers and history in this business. It is cutthroat. Consumer tastes are fickle and fleeting, and they have to continuously reinvent the wheel and you know, basically continue the success in order to justify this valuation. Right. That may well happen, but history is against them. Hmm. I, have, I have two words. Uh, I think I mentioned this on the show last week. Bum equipment. Do you guys remember bum equipment bum from equipment. the 1990s? How about no, Bugle tell me Boy more. jeans? Huh? Bugle Boy jeans. There's, there's another one. Some of the most popular clothing brands in the 1990s that were huge successes 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. 
are in museums now. So fashion is a very fickle industry. Do you remember how cool it was to shop in Pacific somewhere oh, when we were young? That was the best. Pac Sun is a classic. What's <laughs> wrong with you guys? Come on. <laughs> Dinosaurs over here. Fossils. Uh, all right. In other earnings news, JCPenney announced a 2% increase in same-store sales for the fourth quarter. That's the first time since the second quarter of 2011 the retailer has generated a positive quarterly sales result. <laughs> Not bad. Great job. JCPenney, you should be really proud I th- of yourself. I think you basically just said all we need to say. <laughs> you uh, know, that's that's actually not a bad point. Um, so that's that's the question then: Is this the beginning of a turnaround for JCPenney, or are we just stalling out before their inevitable flaming doom? I I, I wouldn't bet on it. They've done virtually nothing right over the last <laughs> three years. I don't think that's any any sense of exaggeration in that. Mm-hmm. I think if you're an investor and you're looking at this as a bargain, you really have to be careful. I think it could be the the classic. Value value trap where you say, look, shares are down X percent, whatever it is, 90-something percent now. JCPenney's not going out of business. Well, no that's, way. You know, I'm sure people Iconic said that brand. about... Iconic uh, brand. That's what they said about Kodak, too, right? <laughs> nice. So. Yeah, look at all these old-school references from back in the day. <laughs> I mean, Sun, yeah, Kodak. it's just... This is like one of those things where you're saying, you know, an, an animal gets run over by a car and it's not dead. Um, I mean, there's kind of, we're really putting lipstick on a pig here. This is coming off. <laughs> the metaphors uh, are flying fast. Yeah, the metaphors can we come up They're with? all accurate. They're, they're all accurate. They're coming off a 31% decline to comps mm-hmm. a year ago. So now you've increased your sales 2%. I guess, you know, the little ray of light here is that people have not continued to not come into J.C. Petty. Okay. And, <laughs> I mean, that is part. Uh, I guess that's the first step in a successful turnaround. <laughs> but, sure. You know, this this is a brand that has really suffered in terms of just turning its customers away. Mm. And I guess not much different than what we were saying with Coors or Coach, which is, you know, once you lose your customer's attention, how do you get them back? This is a very difficult business. And, you know, what they're, what they're offering is relatively undifferentiated. They have deep relationships with their vendors and they have great real estate. So I guess you, you could say they have relative advantages in that. But that's not going to make people come in the door. Right. Absolutely. All right, uh, let's take a step back real quick and look at the market as a whole. Uh, yesterday, the Dow was down over 140 points at one point. That means it's down 1,000 points since its high at the end of December of last year, just over a month ago. Guys, what's got investors so spooked? Is it consumer confidence and end to supportive central banking policies? Is it China? What is it? Well, I think you have to first consider, you know, the market had the best year since 1995 last year, I right. think. So whenever the market's up 30%, you know, I think it's it's perfectly normal. You should expect something like this to happen. People are taking profits. You know, I heard a, an interesting statistic yesterday. Yesterday, the Dow fell 300 some odd points. And yeah. that was the worst day for the market since June. June 20th. Hmm. And I thought, how many people remember the crash of June 20th, 2013? Nobody. Nobody remembers that. And I think things like yesterday will be the same. In another two weeks, everyone will forget about it. And I think this is where knowing the history of market crashes becomes really important. Hmm. If you look back over 150 years, the, the stock market the stock market as a whole falls 10% about once every 11 months. Hmm. These are just things that you should expect as a long-term shareholder. The reason that shareholders earn long-term superior returns is exactly because we experienced things like the last week. The volatility is part of this game, hmm. and p- investors should always expect it. Okay. Right. I- 
I mean, I, I think the only thing that is perhaps worth noting on the part of investors is that there are these pockets of, of little disruptions happening in emerging market economies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of money coming out of these economies. There's nothing particularly worrisome on its face right now. These are small and peripheral economies. They don't represent a huge part of the global economy. But sometimes when money starts to leave small economies, there's a degree of self-fulfilling prophecy that spreads. There's contagion. Um, all else equal, you know, I think that the global economy is on relatively sound footing. I didn't think stocks were particularly cheap before this. And saying, you know, I like this, but I also didn't really think they were that expensive. So, you know, like Morgan said, if you are an investor in this market, I don't think this really shakes your confidence in anything. You're doing the same thing you were. You're trying to buy good businesses cheap. Sounding confident, gentlemen. All right. Well, let's continue with the history lesson. You look at February historically, it's always been one of the worst months for stocks. Is it going to be one of the worst months for stocks or are you guys guys looking forward to February? I think think trying to guess what stocks are going to do in any given month is the equivalent of, you know, what's weather going to do in the next four minutes or something. It's just not something that anyone can really predict. And I think if, if you're investing for only the month of February, maybe that would be relevant to you. But I think most of our readers or our viewers, listeners, I should say, Mm -hmm. Uh, are or should be investing for years or even decades in the future. Right. Uh, and also, when when you have statistics that you know February or September is one of the worst months for the market, you know those averages are based on huge skews. So I mean, one year you had a really bad February, and then when you average everything together, it looks like February. But you know you can have anything happen in February. So those, I, I think, our listeners should not be concerned with numbers like that. Yeah, things like this are akin to sort of mapping compatibility between people according to their astrological signs. Like, mm. I mean, there's just... I'm a Sagittarius. Well, <laughs> I'm a Capricorn and I don't know if we're compatible. <laughs> oh, I don't think uh, we are. I have no idea. Uh, in any event, I don't think it can matter less. Like, It's just one of these highly, highly, highly contingent variables that really doesn't tell you anything in the broader scheme of things. I, I, I agree, but makes we a both great know. Yeah, it makes a great headline and we both know our astrological signs off the top of our heads. I know I'm a Sagittarius. You know you're a Capricorn. There we go. People know that February is historically one of the worst months for stocks. Is it just self-fulfilling prophecy after a while? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> take it for what it is. If people decide they're going to leave the market, use it as a gift. You know, for years, there was this idea of the January effect that, you know, for whatever reason, investors put a lot of money in the market in January, and January is always a great month. Hmm. So investors tried to take advantage of that by buying in December. But then everyone started buying in December, so then the January effect became the December effect. So then everyone's tried to take advantage of it in November, and then it became the November effect. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just kept going on and on and on until I think most people that look at the data look at it and say there's there's no X effect for any month. It's just anything can happen. Right. I think, yeah, it's just one of these things where if you're going to achieve extraordinary results or even decent results in the market, you won't get them by thinking the same way everyone else is. And, mm. you know, subscribing to Believing there's any inherent advantage in thinking about these varieties of trends, it's just, it doesn't, that's not going to help you as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Last but certainly not least, the big news from today, Microsoft has announced their third ever CEO, Satya Nadella. Guys, what do we know about Mr. Nadella? Very little. I don't. I had never heard of him until a couple of days ago. I don't think. I don't think anyone mm-hmm. or few people outside of Microsoft had. Yeah. I would say, Tom Gardner, Molly Fool's CEO. We were talking about six months or a year ago, 
And Tom said that after Steve Jobs died, what Apple should have done is found a really ambitious, visionary 28-year-old and made him the CEO. And then you hire, you have someone like Steve Cook as a COO Mm. to run the day-to-day, but you have this crazy visionary running the company, which is what Jobs was. Mm -hmm. That's what Mark Zuckerberg is. Uh, so I, I, you know, I was thinking about that with Tom, Tom's view with Apple, and thinking, well, maybe that's what my Microsoft should have done too. You have the the seasoned adult as the chief operating officer, but right. you have a young visionary that's actually right. steering. Keep the, the ship. responsible one in, in charge of the money. Keep the young guys with the bright ideas. Right. Well, from all reports, uh, and this is all just what I've read on the internet. Obviously, Mr. Nadella is something of a, a conservative. Uh, he's a he's a backroom guy. He's he himself has said he'll be leaning heavily on Bill Gates for advice and support. Bill Gates, by the way, coming back in for a, uh, a consulting position of right. some sort. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he needs the money. That's what it comes yeah, down to. Absolutely. <laughs> the Gates <laughs> Foundation is starting to run a little dry. I think we should give this guy a little bit of credit, though. I mean, he has been at the heart of two of uh, Microsoft's more successful endeavors in recent years. Hmm. He ran their enterprise segment where, if you look, their servers and tools segment, and these are these are software programs that kind of run organizational plumbing, if you'll call it that. They make things work. Uh, it's an absolute cash juggernaut. And, you know, the stickiness among enterprise customers is huge, highly profitable. He also was behind their push into Office 365, which is a cloud-based offering of Microsoft Office. It decouples it from the Microsoft Windows platform, gives a subscription-based model, nice recurring revenue stream. Um What I'd like to see him do is to double down on those core strengths. These are the areas where Microsoft really has, I guess, I I don't want to call it inertia. I mean inertia in a good way with its customers. Um, Don't pursue these sort of capital sink endeavors. Search, that doesn't really contribute to Microsoft's core capacity or advantages. Microsoft Xbox, cool, like it. Um, however, <laughs> don't really have much use for it. And then, you know, I mean, the whole phone gambit, I understand that if you're to make your software work, you have to have a tidy little package on the hardware end of the spectrum. But if you look at history, these are consumer electronics type wares. It's a losing proposition. Um I would like to see him de-emphasize that as well. Um, so it sounds like you, like the conservative side of this guy, while Morgan would have preferred maybe somebody a little more younger, a little punchier, somebody who'd make some more headlines. A little crazier. A little crazier. A little, mm-hmm. little more think outside the box. So I guess the question is, are you guys buying Microsoft today on, on the new leadership, or are you holding off and waiting to see how he does? I, I don't own, and I have no intention of it. No intention of no. it. Why not? Well, I mean, it's you know, it's it's not a high growth stock. It's not necessarily a value stock. I just look at it and say, you know, what I don't. It just, you know, it, it may very well do fine over the coming years, but there's nothing that really catches my attention about it. Okay, you know, I I uh, I've owned Microsoft for about six or seven years. Uh, I- and it's been a stock that I've hated to own, and that's actually the very reason I've continued to own it. <laughs> it has been so incredibly frustrating, but it turns out cash, the strength of the company's moat, is virtually indomitable. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see that changing. I think they need to evolve, and the company itself needs to be introspective. Hmm. Um, but at 13 times cash flow, I don't think it's a tremendously expensive stock. You would never believe this, but if someone were to ask you whether or not Microsoft has beaten the market over the past six or seven years, what would you say? 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you'd say, eh. <laughs> actually, it has. Um, okay. Unbelievably so. I was, I, I looked up whether or not that position had beaten the market for me, and I was surprised to find that it had. Hmm. Who knew? All mm-hmm. right, maybe we'll see if it uh, continues to beat. All right, Oregon Housel, Mike Olson, guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.